0: Amen. My title for you this morning from 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 through 6 is simply the Christian life from start to finish. The Christian life from start to finish. I'm excited to get to all that I have to share with you this morning, so I'm going to forego any kind of introduction, and let's get to our first of two points this morning, which is this, Atonement. Atonement. If you look again at the text, we can just peruse it again quickly so that our minds are focused on what the text is saying this morning. The first couple of verses read like this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Atonement, that's our first point this morning. To begin, note John's term for the church and his people. The very first words out of the second chapter read like this, my little children. Throughout this book, we're going to read terms of endearment from John toward the Christians that live in this church, that worship within this church. It's an indicator of how he thinks of them, and how he feels for them it also shows what a healthy relationship looks like between a church and its leader say amen recently a semi-argument started between a couple of people under a post I made I don't argue online I just start arguments some shade was thrown my way which is not that big a deal Didn't really surprise me. I get emails and comments from people on a regular basis that say what I did wrong or what I said wrong. And if you're a leader, that's just part of what you got to deal with. But what was always interesting to me is this, how oftentimes those who are the most opinionated are also the least informed. I can't be the only one that's recognized this. How often those who are the most opinionated and hold so strongly to those opinions are also the least informed. In this particular case, an argument over pastors and churches and church membership started, and this person suggested that they requested a conversation with me about issues, and I ignored them. Of course, it's nonsense, but the accuser can say whatever they want to because I'm not their pastor. They have no membership here and, therefore, have zero accountability to me or to you. I didn't lose a moment's sleep or thought over it. I say all that to say this, church. It's about identification. You hear what I said? It's about identification. Identification. Some people have a problem with everybody because they don't identify with anybody. Let me say this again because you got a few of these people in your life and you can't figure out what their issue is. Some people don't identify I have a problem with everybody because they don't identify with anybody. I know my identity. I know who I am in Christ and what's more, I know that I am the pastor of First Baptist Cutler Ridge. My church family comes first always and forever. I have friends who have needs. I have friends that say, will you do this wedding? Or if someone passes away and people are in grief, will you please do this funeral? And I try to do what I can for those who are in Christ and that we know. But no one comes in front of my church family. No one. You can ask, Patty, we get calls on a regular basis. Will you do the wedding? Will you do our counseling? And the answer is always, what, Patty? No. No. Because my family comes first. And I'm working too hard for my family to spend my spiritual, emotional, and mental energy on people who are not in my family. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. The reason I bring this to your attention is because whatever other church has rogue members or whatever other Christians are supposedly too good for those of us who are covenant members of a church, whatever their issues are, they're not my issues and they shouldn't be your issues either. To use John's words to his church, we're family. Family means something. Membership means something. That's why we go through a membership class here in this church if you want to be a member so that you can understand who I am and what we expect of members of our church and what the membership should expect of me. Because there is, biblically speaking, some accountability in this familial relationship that exists between God and us and each other. Now, people can say whatever they want online. John is saying something to a particular group of people, and in what he's saying, we should infer something. It means something to be a member of a church. Amen? It means something to serve as a member of a family of a church. (laughs) Continuing with verse 1, getting to the purpose statement, John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not what? Sin. Church, everything that he's written so far, what's in this letter thus far, and everything that he's going to write in this letter is to encourage these Christians to reject sin now we've already been taught in chapter one if you missed it go to our podcast on iTunes or our website to catch up that one we are all sinners and two we need to repent and confess our sin to God through Jesus Christ for their forgiveness of those sins here, John reiterates that. Again, verse 1, if you look at it with your eyes. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, get this, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's a lot in these two verses. Let me break down a few important points that I think are uh, tantamount to what John is trying to get us to understand. First, I want you to note that Jesus, he says Jesus the righteous, is our advocate with the Father. Jesus is our advocate. We have no other advocate with the Father. Did you hear that? We have no other advocate with the Father. Amen. Mary, the virgin who gave birth to the incarnate Jesus, isn't beside the Father on your behalf. Amen. So don't bother with Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. There are no saints next to the Father advocating for you, so don't bother praying to Francis or Anne or Michael. There's no one around the throne interceding on your behalf. There's only one person advocating for you in heaven, and his name is Jesus the righteous. Amen. It is him in whom we have the right by faith To stand in the presence of God when eternity comes for us no one is speaking on our behalf no other person now Mary we respect Mary the Bible speaks very highly of Mary but I I have news for you Mary was a Christian Mary was saved by Jesus just like you and just like me so we don't play down Mary but we don't play Mary up either we take Mary like all the other people that are taught to us in the scriptures as an example of faith, as an example of godliness, etc. But we aren't taking different people throughout history and making them saints so that we can pray to them and ask them to trade in some of their good works on our behalf. Why don't we do that? Because the scripture says that there is only one who advocates for us to the Father, and his name is Jesus. We have only one advocate with the Father. That word advocate is a beautiful word. It literally means someone like a friend who speaks up on the behalf of the accused. How beautiful is that? Every time you mess up, every time you sin, Every time you do the thing that you promised God you would not do again, Jesus goes, Dad, don't don't forget. He's family. Second, I want you to note that Jesus is not only our advocate with the Father, but Jesus is also, secondly, the propitiation for our sins. John says he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, this is a deep word. I don't know when the last time was that you ever used the word propitiation. Note the word. It's a theological word that we don't often use, but it's here in the text. So we need to deal with it. If you're using an NIV this morning instead of an ESV like I use, if you're using an NIV, you'll see that the text translates it like this, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the Good News Bible translates it like this, Christ himself is the means by which our sins are forgiven. You see, tr- you see all the interpretation that's going into some of these translations? They're helpful, but you can hear the interpretation going into the translations. The new living translation puts it like this, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. Now, none of this is wrong. All of these translations are useful and helpful. Amen. But literally 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 says, he is the propitiation for our sins. To be specific, the Greek word is used in a variety of places to refer to a God's wrath being placated or appeased after a sacrifice is made on behalf of sinners. But it's only used a couple of times in the New Testament. Because it's only used a couple of times in the New Testament and because its use is more common outside of Christianity, some theologians have shied away from the use of it altogether because they say it's unattractive to say that God has wrath against sinners. I have a couple of verses I want to share with you because this is important. The Bible does say that God has wrath against sinners. There is no escaping this. Let me give you a couple of texts. The first is Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. It says this, amen when you're ready. The wrath of God, the what? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. That is to say, God is, to a degree, pouring out his wrath, allowing his wrath to be executed in the lives of the ungodly and in the lives of the unrighteous. We know because the book of Revelation teaches us that there is a time toward the end of time when God pours out his wrath on the earth. That's not what we're talking about, but we're seeing God execute his wrath already in the lives of those that are unrighteous and ungodly. Now, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.9. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, God has not destined us, who? Us. Us. You need to say us loud here. This is a good one. God has not destined whom? Us. Us. Thank you. To wrath. He has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God has a providential predestined plan, Paul is saying to the Christians. He's saying God's wrath is being poured out against the ungodliness and wickedness of men. But God has not destined us for that. So, on the one hand, church, God's wrath is against the ungodly. But on the other hand, God's wrath isn't against Christians. Amen. So, what's the difference? That is where the propitiation comes in. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. God isn't angry with his people because God's wrath isn't against his people because Jesus has provided for their sin and brought them into God's family. And God's wrath is not poured out on his family. So God isn't just our creator anymore. God is our father. Church, this is an important theological topic because God is not the father of everyone. God is only the father of the redeemed. And those who are redeemed and are adopted into the family of God are done so by the propitiation that is provided for in Jesus Christ. In other words, there is no one in the family of God who has an angry father against sin and wickedness. Everyone in the family of God is in the family of God forgiven and with an advocate beside the Father speaking on their behalf. Third, I want you to note that not only do we have an advocate in Jesus and not only is Jesus the propitiation for our sin, but third, note that Jesus is a sufficient Savior. Again, John says, if you look at the text again, verse 2 with me, it says, He, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sin and not only ours, but the sin of the whole world. Like propitiation, this is another delicate theological lesson that requires some attention to detail. Here, John is saying that God's redemption is available to everyone around the world, all the nations. This is what Paul meant when he said in 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. I love that. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. There's something to be considered here. If Jesus is the propitiation for the world, and if Jesus is the reconciliation of the world, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, How is it that the world is not saved? Suffice it to say that these scriptures don't mean the world is forgiven. That would be an incorrect deduction. But what they most certainly mean is that no matter who you are, if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation and the forgiveness of sins, You will be saved. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you're from, whether you've got a religious background or not, whether you grew up learning the Bible or not, doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, educated, or ignorant. It's irrelevant because the scripture says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And why is it that the promise comes from the scriptures, from our mouths, to those that don't know Jesus? Because Jesus is the propitiation for the whole world, not just those of us who are already saved. No, those of us who are already saved are getting this encouragement. Hey, don't sin anymore. Say no to sin. We have an advocate with the Father, He's forgiven you, but not only you, he's a propitiation for the world, which means we need to take the message of forgiveness and propitiation, and we need to spread it. We need to share it, because God can save anyone who places their faith in him. So how does that work out in God's providence and God's election? That's his business. That's not our business. Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but those things which he has revealed, he has revealed to us and to the next generation. There are some things that are God's business, church. There are some things that we can sit down and think about and philosophize and theologize over. We can even disagree about the shade of this or the shade of that, but we cannot disagree about this. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because Jesus' propitiation is for the world. doesn't matter where you come from. The promise is that his propitiation was sufficient for anyone who calls on him. Anyone calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Even this guy? Yeah, even that guy. Even that lady over there? Yeah, even that lady over there. You cannot truncate the grace and mercy and love of God That is sufficient to save sinners. There is no boundary in God's love. It overcomes divisions and categories. It overcomes groups and factions. It surpasses sin, and where sin abounds, his grace abounds much more, and it cleanses sinners like you and me no matter who we are or what we've done. Amen? Before we go to our next point, church, under this point of atonement, let me challenge you not to judge before you share the gospel. Only God is the judge. You never know what God is going to do through your offer of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's God's business. It's not yours. You've never saved anybody. You never will. The provision that God has provided for in Christ Jesus is sufficient for all that will call on him. All you need to do is share the message, which is, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be forgiven and live for eternity with him. So that's atonement. That's the first thing that we've looked for here or learned here. The second thing that we need to learn is obedience. Atonement And obedience, you recall from the title this morning, the Christian life from start to finish. This is really what it's all about. It's about atonement or forgiveness and propitiation and the subsequent phase of our life, which is obedience. If you'll look at the passage again, I want to read it from start to finish. It says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked." What a great little passage. Second point this morning, obedience. After atonement, obedience. After atonement, Obedience. obedience. If I can summarize what John is saying here in one simple sentence, I would do it like this. Atonement means that we are saved from sin, not for sin. Listen up. Atonement means we are saved from sin, not for sin. In verse 3, John says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Church, notice John's emphasis on knowledge. This is how we know that we know him. The word knowledge is simply the word that is commonly used to refer to knowledge. It's knowledge. It's verifiable truth. So John isn't asking everyone for their two cents, their opinion, their experience, their relatability to the topic. No, John is simply saying that we know, we know him if we keep his commandments done. We're not going to sit around and get everybody's opinion, get everyone's view. Does it change from day to day? Can it be augmented by the influences of our relationships? And No, this is nonsense. John says in one simple synthesis, if you know him, you'll live like him. Period. That's how we know. It's not about talk. It's not about appearances or images. It's not about how many degrees we have. It's not even about how many verses we have memorized or how often we go to church. We know that we know him if we observe his commandments. And then the negative is stated in verse 4. The negative is stated in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Which suggests something for us that when people are impacted by the truth, there is change. We talked about this a few weeks ago. When people are impacted by the truth, there is an inevitable change. Here, John is saying that if you say you know him, but you don't live the way that he's told you to live, there's no truth there. You're lying. John adds in verse 6, whoever says he abides in him, that is to say, lives in him, dwells in him, remains in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the definition of discipleship. Discipleship is all about the student-master relationship, that the student lives like and looks like the master In our case, our mentor, our master, is Jesus Christ. Amen? Our lives should reflect Jesus' lives. Our words should reflect Jesus' words. If we bump into somebody who is supposedly a student of someone we know, but they don't talk like them, they don't act like them, and they don't believe like them, we would immediately say, yeah, I doubt very much that you are a student of that person. And that's what John is saying. John is saying, if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, then our lives will show it. If we say we are disciples of Jesus Christ and our lives don't show it, John says, you're a liar. Church, John has already said it. The atonement is meant to end the rule and reign of sin in our lives. The only ruler in our lives should be our Lord. If we obey our bodies and passions, then we're slaves to those things. If we obey them when they come calling, they rule over us. But if we obey the Lord out of love for his redemption and atonement, then we belong to him. We're obedient to him. We reflect the fact that we are forgiven by going from sin and not towards sin. A couple of practical things that I think it's important for us to note here under the topic of sin. You might want to write these down. First, when it comes to sin, we shouldn't accept it. We shouldn't accept sin. I need to talk to you for a minute about this. We shouldn't accept sin. It's unacceptable to the Lord, and therefore it should be unacceptable to us. He's called us to live lives that reflect his holiness and his righteousness, period. Sin isn't acceptable. But if it somehow is acceptable to us, to one degree or another, then we'll know because we'll begin to tolerate it. That leads to the next thing I want you to think about. We shouldn't accept sin, but if it is somehow acceptable to us, the next step will be tolerance but we shouldn't tolerate sin either. When we see sin, do we excuse it? Do we tolerate it? Do we deny its negative effects? Do we diminish its seriousness, its consequences? Is sin for us just something that we shrug our shoulders about? I think, I dare say, we all are guilty of this. Or do we have a biblical understanding of sin? Do we realize that it is sin that put Jesus on the cross? Do we hate sin and love righteousness? Are we aiming at walking in the footsteps of our Lord who always loved sinners but always hated sin? So we shouldn't accept it. We shouldn't tolerate it. Thirdly, We shouldn't manage it. We should not be managing sin. This is a a bit more intricate. You know what management is. Management occurs when you know it's wrong, but you're obstinate, and you refuse to surrender that sin to God because you think you can handle it. You know, some of us have addicts in our family. We see management. We know it when we see it. We can see it a mile away, right? That guy can't handle it, but I've got it under control. Those are famous last words. You know anybody who has a situation like that in their life, you know when management of sin becomes a prominent feature. It's, Lord, save me and take all that I have. But I'm going to hold on to this thing right over here because I like it. Or because I like her or because I like him. We have serious shortages in the conviction department when it comes to things like this. We should be serious about the righteousness that Christ is calling us to in view of the atonement that he has provided for us. We should be walking in the way that he has called us to walk, which suggests momentum and progress and forward motion not accepting Jesus, whatever that means, and then sitting down and playing in the dirt. We should be following him faithfully, not accepting, not tolerating, and not managing sin, but giving it to him, fighting back against the unrighteousness and the wickedness that's in the world and in our own hearts for the sake of the one who advocates for us and has provided The atonement. Listen, this covers relationships that we shouldn't have but won't end. Some of you are entertaining relationships that you have, but you shouldn't end, but you should end because they're not in God's will for your life. Habits that we shouldn't have but we won't end because, well, we like to have it. That thing or that person, that One that's causing you to manage what God calls sin. If you can't today cut them off and out of your life, you have a sin problem. And you've got to come to terms with that. Doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. It means that you are a Christian who's not living according to their father's will. Jesus said, In John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Church, that's what we need today. A revival of people within the church who actually believe the words that Jesus spoke. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I love what C.S. Lewis said. Are we creating nice people or new people. We're not aiming at politeness, we're aiming at regeneration. Amen. New people excited for the newness of life, the atonement that's been provided for them, paving a way for a new passion and a new interest that is baptized in the will of the Lord. We need people, a revival of people who are excited about godly convictions and who believe in the Word of God. We don't need more conservatives. We need more people sold out, wholeheartedly committed to Christ and His Word. We don't need more political commentators. We need more people sold out, wholeheartedly committed to Christ and His Word. We don't need more doctors and politicians and so-called educators talking about every facet of life. In their view of every angle, of every jot and tittle, what we need are people who are sold out wholeheartedly for Jesus and his word. I love what John Stott once wrote. He wrote, the proof of love is loyalty. The proof of love is loyalty. I'm loyal to you. Are you loyal to me? Our Lord is loyal to us. Are we loyal to him? John Stott says, the proof of love is loyalty. We cannot claim to live in him if we do not behave like him. Atonement and obedience.